All right, take your Bibles tonight and turn <clears throat> to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> and you might want to get out a piece of paper and a pen. Um, <clears throat> you got, I know you have some uh, spot on the back of your uh, bulletins for um, writing some notes down and things like that. We're going to talk about some things that I think will be very helpful for us tonight and obviously going forward in this series on what I believe and why. And again, I mentioned it this morning, but I'm saying what I believe because this is what I believe and why I believe it. And I, and I think that many of you agree on the same issues and, and uh, have the same beliefs. <clears throat> but I'm not trying to tell you what you believe or what you should believe. I just want to show you from the Bible why I believe what I believe and hope you come to the same conclusion. Um, <clears throat> and I tell you what, it's, it's very different being back in the building. Even when we were meeting out in the parking lot, I can't, you know, the, the um, uh, windshields on there put such a glare that I couldn't even see people. So I was preaching to cars, not people. So uh, it's been a while since I've preached to people now. It's been, uh, well, you know, believe it or not, March 15th was the last service that we had in here uh, with everybody here. We're at May 17th now. It's been two full months since we've met together. And it, it doesn't feel like it's been that long in some ways. And then in other ways, it feels like it's been two years, you know. Uh, so I'm glad for everybody being back in here tonight. I'm going to teach as much as preach tonight, probably do more teaching than preaching, but uh, Romans chapter 14, we'll just use this as a jumping off point. It says this in verse number one, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now, <clears throat> sometimes there's no clear-cut verse in the Bible that will help us decide on a particular matter. Name what it is, and there's not, you know, um, there's not always a verse about that specific particular thing. But we have to remember two things about the Bible. The first thing is that the Bible was written for all people in all ages. And because of that, then everything could not be spelled out in the Bible. Um, for instance, if there was a verse in the Bible that said, thou shalt not smoke camel cigarettes, the old rabbis that, you know, in the Old Testament that sat down there and started trying to figure those things out would have had a very difficult time interpreting that passage, right? Um, it would have been, it's doubtful if they had ever figured out what it meant. Some would have probably made sure they never built a fire near a camel to make sure that the camel didn't, you know, catch on fire and smoke, you know, uh, because they would have no idea what that was talking about. That's not something that came around until many, many, many years later. Um, or, you know, suppose there was a verse in the Old Testament that, that said, thou shalt not watch TV. You know, the old rabbis would have had a hard time figuring out what a TV was, you know, because they, they didn't have those kind of things. It's, they, it's doubtful that they would have ever reached an agreement. So since the Bible was written for all men of all ages, then some things are not very clearly spelled out. They can't be. The other thing that we have to remember about the Bible, in fact, turn over. I want, I'm going to have you turn to a lot of verses tonight, all right? John 21, so... so uh, all that practice that we've done on these sword drills, hopefully you're, you're a little faster in turning. Um, we're we're going to look at a lot of passages. And this, this entire series, now I use a lot of scripture in my messages anyway. I believe that there's no other way to do it than that. If you can't back it up with scripture, then it's just your opinion. 
And I don't want it to be my opinion that convinces you to do something that is right or wrong. I want it to be the Word of God that does it. But obviously, this entire series is, is going to be heavily saturated with Scripture because that's what we're basing everything that we believe on. Now, I love this verse, and I, I've read through the book of John so many times, and only a few years ago, maybe, I don't know, it's been, time flies faster than you think it does. It's probably been five, six, seven years ago now, but I came across this verse, and I was just blown away by it. The Bible says in John 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, get this, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Think about that. Not even the world can contain the books that should be written about Jesus Christ. And so, the Bible is a very condensed book. Uh, if everything that Jesus did was written in books, no one would ever find time to read them all. God chose to reveal the things that he wanted us to know. And that's exactly what the Bible is. The Bible is not a revelation of what God knows. God knows everything. The Bible is a revelation of what God wants us to know. Um, if, if it were a revelation of what God knew, again, the world could not contain the books uh, because there's nothing that God does not know. Somebody said, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God's, God knows everything. He knows everything that we need to know. He knows every situation that every single human being that's ever lived has been in and will be in, and he knows the solution to every one of their problems. Of course, he could have written all of those things down if he wanted to, but he didn't. He gave us a condensed book, uh, and since the Bible doesn't give detailed answers to every question that the believer is going to face, then what, you know, what do we do regarding things that are not spelled out in the Scripture? It's been suggested that Christians let their conscience be their guide. People that, you know, preachers have said, follow your conscience. I don't think that's good advice. Your conscience is regulated by what you believe. And if you believe the wrong thing, if you're not believing the right things, then your conscience is going to mislead you. Take, for instance, somebody who is Catholic, all right? Um, their conscience may bother them if they don't attend Mass because they believe that that's what they ought to do. My conscience has never bothered me about not attending Mass, I, and I've never done it. And why is that? It's because I, I believe that attending Mass is not scriptural. And so if my conscience is going to bother me, it's based on what I believe. A Catholic person's uh, conscience is going to bother them about not going to Mass because they believe that that's what they should be doing. My conscience doesn't bother me about those things because I believe that I should not be doing those things. And so uh, the Bible never says, follow your conscience. You cannot follow your conscience or let your conscience be your guide. Um, and if we, so if we can't follow our conscience and the Bible doesn't give us clear, detailed instructions regarding every single question that would ever come up about something that we believe, then what's a Christian supposed to do when it comes to questionable things? I want to look at 10 principles or guidelines, if you will, tonight that will help us as believers in deciding whether something is right or wrong. So if you need a title tonight is this, Deciding Questionable Things. Deciding Questionable Things. Let's pray. And then we'll look at some of these things tonight. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the principles that we do have in the Word of God that do help us to clearly live in a way that's pleasing to you. Pray that you'd help us as we go through these things, that we'd understand them, that we'd get a stronger sense of what we believe from the Word of God. And God, that you'd help us to be strong in our doctrine and our faith until you come. We'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first principle is this. Are you willing to do right once you know God's will? Are you willing to do right once you know God's will? We're the servants and God is the master. Um, it's not the servant's duty to, to 
guess what the master wants. It's only his duty to obey what the master has told him to do. That's the nature, the relationship of a servant and his master. Um, when a believer does not know whether a certain matter is right or wrong, he should firmly um, decide firmly and clearly that he'll do God's will even if it goes against his wishes. Turn over to John chapter 7. I'll try to give you a little bit of a heads up as we move to these so you have time to get there. But John chapter 7 and verse number 17, the Bible says this, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You see what he's saying there? If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. So how do you do his will if you don't know what the doctrine is? Well, if you say, I'm willing to do what God wants me to do, then God will show you that doctrine. We can't approach God with the attitude, Lord, let me know if this thing's right or wrong, and then I'll decide if I'm going to do it or not. We have to approach it with the attitude, Lord, please let me know if this is right or wrong, and if this is right, then I'm going to do it. If it's wrong, then I'm not going to do it, whether it goes against my preferences or whether it goes against what I've always done or whatever. The person who wants God's very best for his life and will do what is right can know God's will regarding questionable things. If you're not, if you're not willing to do the right thing once you know it, then the rest of the guidelines are pretty much useless. Why decide if something is questionable or not if you've already made up your mind that you're not going to do it once you find out whether it's right or wrong. So are you willing to do what's right once you know God's will? Now, look, there are some things that, that clearly uh, we don't know whether they're right or wrong. Or maybe you've never been taught whether this certain thing was right or wrong. When God reveals that to us, then it's our choice to decide whether we're going to do it or not. But once God reveals to us whether this is right or whether this is wrong, then we have to make the determination going into it that I'm going to do God's will once I know whether it's right or wrong to do it. The second principle is this. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. The second principle is this. Does it agree with all that the Scripture has to say on that subject? Does it agree with all that the Scripture has to say on the subject? Now, admittedly, there are some verses that look as if they go in contradiction to the rest of the gospel, to, to the rest of the Bible. But I can, I can promise you that anything that is an apparent contradiction in the Bible is just that. It's an apparent contradiction. The Bible is not going to contradict itself, and it does not contradict itself. Sometimes we might be looking at it through the, through the wrong lens, through the, through the wrong eyes, and we might be misinterpreting a, 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 a specific passage that gives us an idea that, well, this verse is clearly saying this, when it may not be saying that at all. And you have to look at the Bible in context. Amen. Number one, in context of that passage. So let's just say we take a verse, all right? You have to look at that verse in context of the passage that it's in, and you have to take that passage in context of the rest of the Bible, all right? Um, first, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That verse doesn't mean that we can't sit down in private and read the Bible and study it. It means that one passage of Scripture is not isolated. It's not of a private interpretation. Only you can know what the Bible says there. Nobody else can know it. Or that it's, it's interpreted without considering all that the Bible has to say on that same subject. For instance, there might be a passage that seems to teach one thing, uh, but if you carefully study the Scriptures, it reveals that a lot of other passages clearly state Something that seems to contradict this obscure passage. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. You'll see what I'm talking about. Hebrews chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 6. Actually, I don't know which one it is. I have Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 4, so I don't know which one it is. But it's either Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6 or Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse number 4, but let's try Hebrews 4 first. 
I could turn over there in my Bible, I suppose, and tell you which one it is, but let's see here. Uh, yep, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse number 4. Because if, if you look at this passage and think about this as we read through a, just a couple of these verses here, it seems to teach that a person can be lost after he's saved. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 4. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first priest enter not in because of unbelief. If we only had this passage, we might not believe in the eternal security. Now, I, I think that that's just, you know, if we, if we literally break that passage down and see what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, then I think you'll come to a, con a clear conclusion that he's not talking about that. But if you were just to take those couple verses and read through those things, you might come to the conclusion that, well, eternal security is not a thing. You can lose your salvation. But when you study the other passages that talk clearly about eternal security, um, the matter becomes very clear. Verse after verse states that the believer has everlasting life. John 3.16, John 3.36, John 4.14, John 5.24. Verily, 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 I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So, I mean, the Bible is very clear, very clear on the idea of eternal security. Just because some passage seems to contradict that, does not mean that, well, that passage says very clearly that he, there is no such thing as eternal security. Here, you know, we, we have to take everything into consideration. Um, baptism is another example of that. Uh, the Bible says very clearly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. Oh, look, the Bible says that you have to repent and be baptized for salvation. No, it's not saying that because, number one, that passage doesn't mean that anyway, but number two, you have to take everything that the Bible says on this idea of baptism. And it's very clear that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. I'll answer that one real quick, just so that I'm not leaving you hanging. But repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins. Now, why do you uh, take an aspirin? You take an aspirin because you want to get a headache or because you have a headache? You say take, take an aspirin for a headache, right? I take an aspirin because of a headache, not in order to get a headache. And, it's, it, and that interpretation is very simply just in that passage. It's the same thing. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, not to get remission of sins, but because of remission of sins. So uh, a, a good rule to follow when it comes to this idea is never use an obscure passage to contradict several clear passages. Never use an obscure passage to contradict several clear passages. Here's number three, and maybe we could have said this first, but number three, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Dr. A.J. Gordon once said, there's more you can do after you pray, but there's nothing you can do until you pray. Um, the Bible tells us where to pray about all things. Turn over to Mark chapter 11. Boy, we could go to a lot of different passages, but the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, be careful for nothing. Don't be worried about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. He says in Mark chapter 11 and verse 24, therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. What things soever you desire, I think, would certainly include a believer's desire to know what God has to say about a questionable thing. 
James chapter 4 and verse 2, ye have not because ye ask not. He doesn't say what you don't have. He just says you don't have it because you don't ask for it. Um, that includes the leading of the Lord regarding questionable matters. We have not because we ask not. So when, we, when praying about God's will for something questionable, don't give up if you don't receive a clear leading after one prayer. Just keep praying until God makes it clear. Do you think that God is trying to hide his will from us? Do you think that it's, you know, it's like an Easter egg hunt where the little kid is, you know, uh, a parent goes and hides several of the eggs, and once he sees the kid starting to get close, he goes and grabs it and goes and puts it in another spot because he doesn't want the kid to find the eggs. No, God doesn't do that, just like a parent doesn't do it. A parent is excited that the kid actually found the eggs, and he's hoping that he will find it, right? That's the same thing that God wants for us. He wants us to know what his will is because he wants us to do it. And if we're praying and asking God to show us his will on a particular matter, he'll show us his will on that matter. He wants us to know what it is. And so the promise in Matthew chapter 7, for everyone that asketh receiveth means to continually ask. Then when God answers, he'll do it. He's not going to do it in an audible voice, but he'll lead you by the Holy Spirit. Which brings us then to number four. Do you have the leading of the Holy Spirit? You have the leading of the Holy Spirit on this matter, whatever that matter happens to be. The, the Holy Spirit clearly leads men in all matters, in all areas of their lives. Um, we, could, we could look at a lot of different passages. In fact, turn over to Acts chapter 13. We'll look at a couple of these here. Romans chapter 8, while you're turning over there, verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. In other words... As children of God, as sons of God, we are led by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things, by the way, that the Holy Spirit only does one thing in the life of someone who is not saved, and that is to convict them of their need for Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit does three things, if not more, in the life of someone who is saved. He, convict, he convicts someone of sin in their lives for those who are saved. And one of the other things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer is clearly lead them in their lives. Um, the Bible says in Acts chapter 13, in verse number 1, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. The Holy Spirit clearly led them. And obviously, that was them getting ready to go out on their missionary journeys and everything else. Turn a few pages over to Acts chapter 16 and verse number 6. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the regions of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And obviously, God had some wonderful things for them there. But the Holy Spirit in the first passage, clearly led them to do something, and the Holy Spirit clearly led them not to do something just a couple chapters later. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit clearly can and does lead us in all areas of our lives. A lot of believers who have been saved any length of time have experienced a time when the Holy Spirit gave definite leading in some matter. Go give that person a track. Go tell that person about Jesus Christ. Here's, here's an opportunity. Take that opportunity. That's the Holy Spirit leading you in your lives to do something that, uh, that we should be doing. Or, I know that you've clearly heard sometimes, don't go there. Don't do that. 
That's the Holy Spirit leading us in our life. The, the leading of the Holy Spirit, it's not, it's not an audible voice. It's not having a strange vision or something like that. The Holy Spirit leads through our desires. God works in us the desire, and then he makes the desire a reality. Philippians chapter 2, and verse number 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit is never going to lead you to do something that is contrary to a spiritual principle. Well, I just believe that this is something that God wants me to do. Well, you're clearly violating Scripture to do that. And the Holy Spirit is not going to lead. It's not the Holy Spirit leading you, if that's the case, because the Holy Spirit is not going to lead you to do something that's contrary to the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Holy Spirit is not going to lead us to do something that we should not be doing or not lead us in something that we should be doing that we're not. So since all the scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself in leading someone contrary to the Bible. So does, does it have the leading of the Holy Spirit? Here's another principle. Does it please God? Does it please God? Now, you'd think that that would be something that would be uh, an easy one. Does God, is God pleased in this matter? Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. It is possible for us to keep his commandments, but what if there's no clear commandment regarding the matter that's in question? You know, there, there are some things that are clearly commanded. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. But since there's no commandment that says, you know, thou shalt not listen to rock music, or thou shalt not smoke, or thou shalt not go to the dance, and all those things, then, then what is a believer supposed to do? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So when there is no commandment to obey, the question to ask is, does it please God? Does it please God? We keep his commandments, he says in 1 John chapter 3. Do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Can you honestly and seriously say, this thing I want to do pleases God? Because let's be honest, most of, the things that, most of the things that are questionable are things that we want to do, that we start thinking, well, maybe that's not something that I should be doing, right? Most of it are not, well, we shouldn't be, you know, uh, most, most, of, most of our sins are not sins of omission, they're sins of commission, things that we do that we should not be doing, not vice versa. Um, but, you know, anything that we talk about, can you honestly and seriously say, this thing that I want to do pleases God? The way I dress, I want to please God. If a Christian can honestly answer yes, then he can do it. If he cannot say, yes, this pleases God, then he shouldn't be doing it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And so I, should, I say that the Christian should never do anything unless he is thoroughly convinced that it will please the Lord. should never do anything unless you are thoroughly convinced that it will please the Lord. How many times have you heard, if it's doubtful, don't do it, right? If it's doubtful, don't do it. If you don't know if it pleases the Lord, then you're obviously not convinced that it's pleasing to him. So if it's doubtful, it's better to err on the side of not doing something that you could have done and gotten away with or been fine to do than to do it and have it be something that you should not be doing. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was Stonewall Jackson, and I forget how the, the, the quote went exactly, but he basically said, you know, 
If I, ask, if I have to ask my wife if my shirt is dirty, then it's dirty. And that's the same thing. If, if we're starting to question, well, I wonder if I should really do that or not. You know what that is? Is the leading of the Holy Spirit who's starting to put those questions in your mind that maybe this is not something that I should be doing. And if you cannot say with 100% um, uh, satisfaction, with 100% certainty that it will please the Lord, then it's probably something that we should not be doing. Here's another one, number six. Can you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And actually, in Colossians chapter 3, we find both of the principles that we're going to look at, this one and the next one. But Colossians chapter 3, and whatsoever you do, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. That covers every word the believer is ever going to utter, and it covers anything that the believer will ever do. According to this verse, we're to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, take any issue, smoking, dancing, cursing, you know, listening to the wrong lyrics in songs and things like that. Can you do that in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can I smoke in the name of the Lord Jesus? And I don't mean to sound sacrilegious, I'm not saying that, but can I dance in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can I listen to this music in the name of the Lord Jesus? Everything we ought to do, it says, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you invite Jesus into that action with you? Because as you know, he's already with you. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then he lives inside of you, and he's already being invited to everything that you do. Can you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Here's another one. Number seven, can you give God thanks for it? He says, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whatever the issue, can you thank God for it? I came across this story. Peter Cartwright, he was well known as an old camp meeting preacher and a circuit riding preacher. He was passing over the Cumberland Mountains when he felt compelled to stay at a house overnight uh, where there was supposed to be a dance. And a lot of the people had never heard a sermon. So he sat in one corner of the room watching the dance. And he, he made up his mind to stay over the next day, Sunday, and preach to the people. Here's what he says. I had hardly settled this point in my mind when a beautiful young lady walked very gracefully up to me, dropped a handsome curtsy, and pleasantly, with a winning smile, invited me out to take a dance with her. I can hardly describe my thoughts or feelings on that occasion. However, in a moment, I resolved on a desperate experiment. I rose to as gracefully as I could. I will not say with some emotion, but with many emotions. The young lady moved to my right side. I grasped her right hand with my right hand while she leaned her arm on mine. In this position, we walked on the floor. The whole company seemed to be pleased at this act of politeness in the young lady shown to a stranger. The man, who was the fiddler, began to put his fiddle in the best order. I then spoke to the fiddler to hold a moment and added that for several years I had not undertaken any matter of importance without first asking the blessing of God upon it. And I desired now to ask the blessing of God upon this beautiful young lady, and the whole company had shown such an act of politeness to a total stranger. Here I grasped the young lady's hand tightly and said, let us all kneel down and pray. And then instantly dropped on my knees and commenced praying with all the power of soul and body that I could command. The young lady tried to get loose from me, but I held her tight. Presently, she fell on her knees. Some of the company kneeled, some stood, some fled, some sat still. All looked curious. 
The fiddler ran off into the kitchen saying, Lord, have mercy. What's the matter? What does that mean? While I prayed, some wept and wept aloud. Some cried for mercy. I rose from my knees and commenced an exhortation after I which I sang a hymn. The young lady who invited me on the floor lay prostrate, crying for mercy. I exhorted again. I sang and prayed nearly all night. About 15 of that company professed Christ, and our meeting lasted next day and night, and as many more were powerfully converted. I organized this society, took 32 into the church, and then sent them a preacher. My landlord was appointed leader, which post he held for many years. This was the commencement of a great glorious revival of religion in that region of the country, and several of the young men converted at this Methodist preacher's dance became useful ministers of Jesus Christ. He concluded by saying, here's a case where an old-fashioned preacher prayed about a matter in question, and the result was a revival meeting and the establishment of a church. Think about that. Take, take any of the issues, attending movies. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not attend the movies, but can I thank God for the movies? Even if I can't, should I attend? Here's number eight. Does it bring glory to God? A lot of these principles all build off of each other, but does it bring glory to God? He says very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Does it give God a good name? If not, then it's wrong. He, uh, Psalm 23, we're very familiar with that passage. He says in verse number three, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for my name's sake. We're Christians. We bear his name. Christian was first used in Antioch, and it was used as a derogatory term to make fun of them for being little Christs. That's what Christian means. And so if we're going to bear his name, then we ought to represent him. And our lifestyle, our language, our attitudes, our manner of dress reflect on his name. So does it bring glory to God? Here's number nine. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Does it offend other Christians? Does it offend other Christians? Now, we have to say this, that there are some people, Christians, who are offended by everything. And so that's not, we have to take all of these principles as a whole. But it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Now, Paul was talking here about the fact that there was a lot of these Jews that felt like they shouldn't eat meat. And Paul, you know, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, knew that that was not something that was a, a, a stipulation that was put on him. He was allowed to eat meat if that's what he wanted to do. But he says, if it's going to make one of my brothers to offend, then I won't do it. Paul knew that there was nothing wrong with eating meat, but he couldn't exercise his Christian liberty at the expense of offending another brother. When I ask, does it offend other Christians, I, I don't mean, you know, can you find one single Christian anywhere in this world who would be offended by that action? Uh, you would probably find some Christian who was offended by almost everything that you did. Uh, it's just the way that it is. But if I offended several good and respected Christians, and I wouldn't do it even if I thought it was right. I, I read this story. A, a young lady approached a great preacher of yesteryear and uh, said that she was offended by his necktie. It was, it was a small string necktie that the lady didn't approve of, and so he handed her a pair of scissors and told her to clip it off, and she did. And when she handed the scissors back to him, he said, I'm offended by your tongue. 
get it. I'll give you a second. But you see what I'm saying? Somebody's going to be offended by just about everything that you do. And so we can't, you know, well, that person's offended. We're not, our job is not to try to please everybody. But when there's a lot of Christians who are preaching against a certain thing or preaching in favor of a certain thing, we ought to take that into consideration. Um, offending a Christian brother is a serious thing. Luke chapter 17, verse 2, It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he was cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. He's talking about, obviously, offending a child, but, but offending someone else is a serious thing. We have a responsibility to do everything we can as Christians to help other Christians in their Christian life. We talked about that this morning with the idea of fellowship. Part of fellowship is to exhort others to live more closely to Christ. We have to be careful not to do anything that would offend them. Also, do the best Christians I know agree that it's right? Do the best Christians I know agree that it's right? Well, I know that others are offended by it, but, you know, I'm not offended by it. It doesn't bother me. So, well, what about the best Christians you know? Are they offended by that? Is that something that they refuse to do, or is that something that they refuse not to do? Proverbs 24 and verse 6 says, In the multitude of counselors there is safety. So we have to take that into consideration. We have to. After all the other guidelines uh, don't satisfy your desire to get a matter right, then you should seek the counsel of a good, godly Christian. Ask for their honest opinion. And be willing to change if they can show you from the Bible why whatever it is is right or wrong. And here's the last principle, number 10. Turn over to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Here's the, the last principle. Am I fully persuaded that it's right? Am I fully persuaded that it's right? Romans chapter 14 and verse 5 but if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. The word persuaded means convinced. In other words, if you're not thoroughly convinced that it's right, it's best not to do it. Um, Romans chapter 14, just a few verses later in verse 23. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin, the Bible says. It's always best to give God the benefit of the doubt. Never do anything unless you are thoroughly convinced that it's right. Curtis Hudson told the story about this exact thing. He said, uh, the worst decision I ever made, this is his quote, uh, the worst decisions I ever made were when I didn't have peace about them. I well remember buying an automobile. It was beautiful. I really wanted it. However, when it came time to sign the sales contract, I felt very uneasy. I had no peace. I ignored these uneasy feelings and purchased the car anyway. Boy, was that a terrible mistake, he said. In three months, we had spent more on that automobile than we originally paid for it. Time and time again, I said to my wife, I wish I'd never seen that car. And obviously, that's something, <clears throat> that's something physical. It's not necessarily spiritual, but the same is true of, of what we do in our spiritual life. If the Holy Spirit, and that's who leads us as Christians, is pushing us in a certain direction and saying, I don't, that's not something you should do. The Holy Spirit does lead us in those ways. And so if, if you're not 100% convinced that this is something that's okay to do or that you should be doing, then, then don't do it until you are 100% convinced that the Holy Spirit is fine with it and 100% convinced that this is a right thing to do. The word translated peace, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. 
That word translated peace means to govern or to prevail. In other words, let the peace of God govern. Let it decide. If you don't have peace about a matter, then don't do it. There's nothing wrong with it. Then God's able to give you that complete peace. And I can promise you, like Curtis Hudson, that every time you violate that peace in Colossians chapter 3, you're going to regret it. When deciding questionable things, we ought to have complete peace about it. We ought to be thoroughly convinced, thoroughly persuaded that it's right. There's going to be a lot of times in our lives when we're not going to know exactly what to do. Um, maybe you hear somebody say something about something, and you start to think, wow, I've never heard that before. Maybe that's something that I shouldn't be doing. Or, oh, I've never heard that before. Maybe that is something that I ought to start doing. Um, but there's going to be a lot of things like that that are not exactly spelled out very clearly in the Bible. Thou shalt not, or thou shalt. They're not always there. But when we apply these principles to our daily lives, then we can feel certain that we're doing what God wants us to do. And these are the principles that we're going to be applying throughout the rest of this series to each one of these issues that, that we're going to talk about. And it's so important that we are convinced that this is something that God wants me to do, or this is something that God does not want me to do. And once we're convinced, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life? That's, that's, I, I believe that's number one, because why would the Holy Spirit lead you if he knows that you're not willing to change it, if he clearly makes it, you know, uh, if he makes it clear to you that it's not something that he wants you to do? Why would he lead you in those things if you're, if you're not even willing to be led? So, important, important principles tonight. I told you, this is more of a teaching than preaching, and that's kind of how we're going to be doing these on Sunday nights, but um, I hope you'll come uh, ready to learn and ready to, to get into the Word of God on, and, um, and hear what he has for us. All right? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the fact that we do have these things laid out in the Word of God. That even when, when things are not clearly laid out, clearly spelled out, you give us the leading of the Holy Spirit, you give us uh, godly counselors and, and leaders, and you give us uh, uh, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit to tell us what we should and should not do. And I pray that you'd help us each to rely on that. And God, I pray that you'd help us each to want as best as we know how to live a life that's pleasing to you and a life that'll glorify you and that you might be lifted up by the lives of every single person that's in this room tonight. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I know that we're not necessarily, especially yet, hitting on things that, that maybe the Holy Spirit would tell you you should not do or that you should do, but these are very important principles, and maybe what you can do tonight is make a decision that you're going to, as the Holy Spirit leads you, you will change those things. Look, we might get to some topics that... that you're not convinced of as of right now. We might get to some topics that you think that as of right now you don't believe. But, but if the Word of God clearly points those things out to you, I think you ought to make a decision that you'll be willing to change those things. Because that's how we're going to get the leading of the Holy Spirit. If God's spoken to your heart tonight, then as the piano plays, the invitation's open and you can come.